Well, certainly it was a display of power last weekend, as Gary's already mentioned, as you all know. And sometimes that power can bring incredible destruction. But the power I want to talk about today is a power that doesn't bring destruction to our lives, but rather builds us up in Jesus. Now, when we started the book of uh, Galatians a while back, and we're coming back to it this week. Uh, this Sunday, and it will continue each Sunday until we finish the book of Galatians now. When I started with the book of Galatians, I asked this question, what is your definition of freedom? How would you define freedom? And it's a, it's a critical question. I hope you've been thinking about that as we've been going along. How do you define freedom? Because there is something in the back of your mind, a way that you define freedom. That might be... Uh, Something that's come from your, your childhood or, or your upbringing. It might be something that's come from your education. How do you define freedom? Well, freedom is an important word. It has been over many centuries. At the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were dominated by the Romans. And their definition of freedom was to get the Romans out of what is now Israel so that they could live their own lives. In 1948, Israel became a country. Their definition of freedom was to be able to run their own lives, their own country, without external intervention. In the Civil War in uh, the United States, there was a war about freedom. Freedom was defined as people being freed from slavery and slavery being abolished. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1960s. Organized freedom marches. Freedom was defined as the end of racial discrimination. Like These are all really good things. But what's your definition of freedom? In the 1960s as well, we had the hippie movement. And freedom was defined as free sex and free drugs and free booze. And one of the representatives was Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin was a person classically trained in music. And she wrote uh, popular songs. One of her songs was... Uh, Bobby McGee and me. And it has a chorus that says that uh, freedom's just another word for nothing else to lose. Freedom ain't worth nothing, but it's free. It's your definition of freedom. Janice Joplin died at age 27 from a drug overdose. What a tragedy. Do you think she found her freedom? What's your definition of freedom? The book of Galatians is about freedom. We're looking at the book of Galatians now. In the Bible, in, in Galatians, freedom is defined as freedom from and freedom to. And this is what Paul is talking about through the whole book. Freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from the law, represented by circumcision, but other laws as well. Freedom from the law. Freedom from all that tradition. Freedom from religiosity, the bondage of religion, and freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit to what? This is Paul's definition of freedom. Freedom from the law, and all that represents, all that tradition, all that bondage, freedom, and the power of the Holy Spirit to what? To love. So you bring your own definition of freedom to the book of Galatians, and that can influence how you will interpret the book of Galatians. But if you follow through and follow the details, you'll find that Paul gives us 
his definition of freedom. And my hope that is, if your definition has been different as you come to this book and as we work through the book and look at the details, that your definition of freedom will change. Freedom from, freedom to. And the freedom that Paul is talking about isn't an open term in the book of Galatians that you can do whatever you want with it. Bring whatever definition you want here. Not at all. Paul is talking about freedom in Christ. So let's see how the Apostle Paul defines freedom as we look at our passage today. And you can set your definition of freedom along what we're learning in this passage. We're looking at Galatians chapter 5. Look at verses 1 to 15. Okay, I know we, we missed a little bit at the end of chapter 4, but I do want to finish this by the end of June. So we're going to move ahead to chapter 5, which is the next segment of Paul's argument. This section, Galatians 5, 1 to 15, I think can be summarized like this. To live free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. To live free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, by the power of the Holy Spirit, why? Because we can't do it ourselves. We can't walk the Jesus way, truly walk the Jesus way in our own power, in our own strength. And we're not meant to. Because Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples that when he leaves... This is when he's talking to them. He said, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to send another helper. And he's going to help you. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is saying to his disciples at that point is, I know you love me. I know you're committed to me. But when I leave you, which is the last thing they want, when I leave you, I'm going to send an upgrade of myself. Now, they could hardly imagine any upgrade of Jesus, but that's what Jesus said. I'm going to send you an upgrade of myself, and that upgrade is the Holy Spirit, the helper, the parakletos. To live free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul says, stand firm in verse 1. It means to hold your position, hold your ground, especially in the face of enemy attacks. When I was in high school, I played football, and I was on the front line, I was a right guard. Now, in football, it's this crazy game where you get two teams lined up like this. They face each other, and um, the ball is flipped, and then they just bash each other. Right? Chiropractors hate this game. All right? Chiropractors hate this game. There's so many back injuries. Well, I was the right guard. And the, the point of the front line is to stand firm. When I think of what Paul is saying here, I think of when I played football in high school. It's to stand firm. The whole line is to stand firm so the other people, the other team opposing you can't get through and get to the quarterback and force him to, to throw before he's ready to or maybe even tackle the quarterback. And so a lot of our training had to do with stand firm because for the line, the center, who's like the biggest guy in your high school, that's it. He's just the biggest guy. And then you have a, a right guard and a left guard, and then you have the rest of the line. And it needs to hold together because especially the center and right and the left guard are standing firm. And so a lot of our training was stand firm. 
Stand firm. We had to stand firm while other people punched into us. That's what I think of when Paul was saying stand firm. Hold your position. Stand firm. It's essential. But we can ask stand firm in what? Well, the answer is stand firm in freedom in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul presses his point. See, what Paul says as this passage goes on, even in verse 1, but as the rest of the passage goes on, Paul is saying, stand firm or else. I think, like as I'm reflecting on this, I think as a child, I must have resisted my mother many times because I can so firmly remember her saying, you do that or else. Hmm? You ever heard that? You do that or else. And I never wanted to find out what the else was because I knew when my mother said that, this was serious. I knew it had to be something that I didn't want. You do that or else. Well, that's what Paul is doing in our passage. We're going to see that. Stand firm or else. Look at verse 1. To live free in Christ, stand firm in freedom, by the power of the Holy Spirit, or else be burdened again. Verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. So that's his positive statement. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now I'm hoping that, I'm hoping and I'm praying, I've been praying, that as we come to this passage today, we hear what God has to say to us, that this is going to encourage you to stand firm in your freedom in Christ. And this will not just be a concept for you as you walk out of here, but it will be a reality that you're walking out in and into. To live free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit, or else be burdened again. Well, the word freedom is emphasized because it comes at the very first of the Greek sentence. So Paul starts by saying freedom. He wants to emphasize that. He makes the positive statement followed by these negative statements or else which highlight what he's trying to say. And the freedom spoken of here is from the burden of the yoke of the law. Look what it says. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 1. To submit or to be burdened means to be caught up or entangled. And the best illustration I can think of is barbed wire. It isn't just how it weighs down on you. It is that. But it's, it's worse than that. It's more insidious than that. It's like barbed wire. I grew up working on a farm. And on the farm, you have different fields. And you separate the fields with barbed wire. So the animals are put into a pasture. The cows are put into a pasture. And they're meant to eat that uh, grass or whatever is growing there. But right next to that field, there might be another field that is growing this wonderful crop of mixed grain. Now, if you're a cow, you want to be on that side of the fence. So barbed wire is there, and often there's electricity running through it. The barbed wire is there to keep the animals in the pasture so they don't go over there. But what happens is the younger animals, usually a calf, the older animals know better. It's usually a calf, sees that field, and wants to just get over there and get a little bit of that grain instead of just eating the grass. Now barbed wire is made up of, uh, in case you haven't seen it, of wires 
usually two or three wires, and spaced out on those wires are little pokey things, also made of metal. So they poke up, they poke down, they poke to the side. And if you press your finger on them, you can draw blood in your finger. They're sharp. So what happens is there'll be a calf that wants to get over in another field. Hasn't yet encountered barbed wire. And so what the calf does, he tries to reach over, but then it starts to stick. And so he starts to struggle. And the more he struggles, the more that calf gets caught up in all of this barbed wire. It gets around his head and around his legs, around his body. And finally, he just has to stop struggling because he is so bound by this barbed wire. And at that point, you have to go out to the field, hopefully with at least two people. You need to calm the animal down, first of all. Talk softly to them. Calm them down because they are like frightened out of their mind. And then you need to take these special pliers and you start cutting the barbed wire. You can't unwind it. It's so insidious. It just gets in everywhere and it digs in. You have to start cutting that barbed wire a piece at a time. And you take a piece and and unwrap that one piece and and another piece and unwrap that piece. And calm, calf, calm. Just speak calmly. It makes a difference. Calmly. And keep taking this piece and that piece. You finally get all these pieces of barbed wire because he's so entangled with the barbed wire. And the more he struggled with it, the more he got entangled. So you take every piece, and you get this piece and that piece, and you finally get it all off, and the calf jumps up and runs back into the field, and then you have to fix the fence. But that's the idea that Paul has here. Don't get entangled. Do not submit again. Don't get entangled again with a rope, with the, the, the yoke of slavery. It's like a barbed wire. It just gets worse and worse. But Paul's saying to the Galatians, the deeper you get into trying to get right with God by keeping the law, the more entangled you become. Get out now. Be, be free in Christ by standing firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. The yoke of slavery is the burden of the rigorous demands of the law as the means for gaining God's favor. It's an intolerable burden for sinful people, and that would be like every one of us. Paul says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't get entangled with that stuff again in any shape or form. Now, many of the Galatians had not come from a Jewish background. They came from a pagan background. So what they had in the pagan background is they worshiped idols. But there was a certain form of worship. They had to do sacrifices. It was very demanding. And um, it showed that they were submitted to the idol, that the idol controlled them. And now what's happened is they've come to Jesus. They found freedom from all that idolatry, all that idol worship. And what Paul has heard, which is why he's writing this, this letter, like he's just writing it fast to get it out there. What he has heard is that they're getting entangled again to the old Jewish religion. It's it's religious bondage. It's all about formalistic religion. They've been set free in Christ, free from that kind of bondage, religious bondage. And now the Judaizers are coming and they want the Galatians to be bound again to the law. Paul says, don't do it. Just don't do it. You know, we all know what a virus is, right? Uh-huh. 
We all know what a virus is. My grandchildren know what a virus is. My, my grandchildren know about coronaviruses and about COVID-19. So we all know what a virus is. And we know that how it can infect people and it goes from one person to another person and, and the infection spreads around. That's why we had all these restrictions to try and stop the, the um, spreading of this virus. Well, the Galatians have been infected with a virus. This virus convinces them that being right with God comes not only by surrendering to Jesus, but also by keeping the law of Moses. Jesus plus. So some of them have become convinced of this. And this is a virus that Paul wants to take on right away. In today's terms, Paul is saying, you, you need a vaccine for this virus. And we all know about vaccines as well. The Galatians need a vaccine against the virus of the false teaching of working by keeping the law to get right with God. And we all need a vaccine against the virus, the false teaching of working to keep whatever our laws might be, whatever our rules might be, whatever our religiosity might be, whatever form that takes. We all need a vaccine against that. It appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our pride. Look how great a Christian I am. We all need a vaccine against that. We all need against a vaccine against the false teaching of Jesus. Plus, the vaccine to overcome that virus is the Holy Spirit working in us to apply the freedom we have in Christ, gained for us by his death on the cross. That's the vaccine that we live we need to live free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul continues, to be free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit, or else, remember, we're looking at the or else, or else be bound again, or else ruin grace, verse 2 and 4. Let's look at or 2 to 3. Let's look at verse 2. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no value to you. Christ will be of, of no benefit to you. If you're determined to work for your salvation, you will be on your own. If you try to operate by faith and works, will you get works in the end? There's no mixing the two. Look at verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. It's not circumcision in and of itself that Paul is condemning. In Acts chapter 16, Paul takes Timothy as part of his team, and Paul has Timothy circumcised. Not so Timothy will be saved, but so that the ministry of Timothy can be larger. Timothy came from a pagan father, and from a Jewish mother. Apparently, he had not been circumcised as a baby. But with circumcision, he now can have a ministry in the name of Jesus amidst the pagans. He can relate to them, but also in the midst of the Jews. So that's why Paul had him circum circumcised. Paul is strongly opposed to the Judaistic theology, which insisted that circumcision is necessary for salvation. It's not just circumcision, it's what it represents. And here circumcision represents all the old covenant. It's a metaphor for all the works of the law. 
And if you operate by the works law principle, you're obligated, Paul says, to keep the whole law. Like every single one of those laws, you need to, you need to keep them. And if you fail, well, what have you got left? Because you failed. Paul makes this clear in chapter 3, verse 10. If you're trying to work for your salvation by keeping the law, by good works, by being religious, and you fail, which you will, what have you got left? Okay, so circumcision is not the issue for us today. Uh, is there a circumcision equivalent in the church? Well, there is. We could speak this in kind of a broad sense, but um, in a more narrow sense, is there equivalent today? Well, it, it depends on the church. Now, some churches, baptism takes the place of circumcision. And, and these churches, um, many people believe that you must be baptized to gain salvation and a right standing with God. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. Baptism is really important. And it's important as a public declaration of following Jesus. And in fact, we have a baptism Sunday coming up at the end of June, as you will have seen on the announcements. It's not about baptism. Baptism is not your salvation. It's important, but it's not your salvation. If you're already a follower of Jesus, someone who has given your life to Jesus, and uh, you've received his, his new life, someone who has died to your own way and risen to living for Jesus, then the, the symbolism of baptism is great. But if not, it falls short because it's not your salvation. If you're basing your faith for salvation on the fact you were baptized sometime, like as a baby, maybe as an adult, if that's where you're basing your faith for salvation, then I'm sorry to say you are wrong. Baptism won't save you. Just as circumcision didn't save. We're made right with God. This is what Paul's been teaching us up to this point. We're made right with God by faith alone, in Christ alone, not by our own works, but through the Holy Spirit. And now Paul is adding to that teaching. He's saying to be free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul continues, to be free in Christ, stand firm in freedom in the power of the Holy Spirit, or else fall away from grace. Verse 4 says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. What a statement. Paul is saying you become alienated from Christ. So here's the problem. Salvation by works denies the complete work of Christ on the Calvary. What it says is that what Jesus did on the cross isn't enough. It needs to be more. I need to add my works to what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus isn't enough. And the result is alienation from Christ, not living in the sphere where Christ is operating, not living in the sphere of grace. So what about this statement, falling away from grace? Well, we know Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. You accept God's gracious gift or you do not. That's the point. There's no fence sitting. Grace plus works equals fallen from grace. That's what Paul is saying. If you want to add works to it, you've fallen from grace. You're not relying on grace. You accept God's gracious gift or you do not. So it works like this. Grace plus works equals fallen from grace. If you're earning your salvation, 
It is not of grace, it's works. There is no in-between ground. The issue is not can you lose your salvation, which might have been a question that came to your mind, but leaving the grace system for the mosaic system. You place yourself outside the scope of divine favor because gaining God's favor by observing the law and receiving it by grace are mutually exclusive. You can't have both. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Righteousness is a reference to God's final verdict of not guilty. Not guilty confirmed here and now in our life as a believer in Christ by faith, and by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the work that he does, he does in our lives. At the coming of Christ, believers will be completely conformed to all the requirements of God's will by his grace. I hope you find that affirming. By his grace, we will completely conform to all the requirements of God's will. So where does this lead? Verse 6, faith working through love. Okay, I want to just hold that thought because Paul is going to give us a parenthesis in verses 7 to 12, and then he's going to return to flesh out that statement of faith working through love. Now, the point is, there's no in-between place. We went to South Korea to visit our daughter, Heather, who was teaching ESL there. And while we were were there, we heard about the uh, DMZ. The DMZ is... Um, it's 260 kilometers across the peninsula, about four kilometers wide. It's an area that cuts the Korean peninsula in half. So you get North Korea and South Korea. And it comes from a war that happened in the 1950s, which was never resolved. It wasn't that someone won. It just wasn't resolved. And so it's kind of like a, a place of peace. The, the DMZ is to remind people south and north of it that there is a peace between these now two countries. There's no cease. There's a ceasefire, but there's no end of the war. And Paul is saying, when it comes to grace and works, there's no DMZ. There's no in-between ground. There's no peace. If you're trying to find peace with Jesus plus, there's no peace there. There's no DMZ, no peace zone between law and grace, between being made right with God by grace alone and Christ alone and trying to be made right with God by good works, religious works. You're in one country or the other. You're in one system or the other. You're under the umbrella of grace in Christ or the umbrella of works and law. To be free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul continues with his paragraph, chapter 7 to 12, To be free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit, or else be hindered in your progress as a believer. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, Paul really likes athletic metaphors. And this is an athletic metaphor for us. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? I note that the NIV uses a phrase, who cut in on you? which is the basic idea. Cutting in results in hindering. So in the ancient world, runners would run a race. And um, it wasn't 
always in a circle like we often do today, you know, around and around the quarter mile. But they would run to a post in the distance. They'd have to go around that post and run back. Now, what could happen is as they're running, and especially as they get near to the coast, to the post, that if one runner cut in on another, he would, he would maybe knock the runner out totally, knock him down, but it would certainly break his pace. He would break his focus in the race. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. Don't lose your momentum. Don't, don't break stride. And you're following Christ. Maybe a better illustration is getting cut off in traffic. Like you go down the 417. You're driving along and someone wants to get to that exit over there. And so uh, they don't realize that it's come up so soon and they cut across in front of you. You know what? How many people hammer the brakes and say, God bless you, brother. Yeah, no. It breaks your concentration, doesn't it? It hinders you in your driving. And for the next, how many miles? <clears throat> you talk to that person that can't even hear you. Maybe that's more a better illustration for us. Who's cutting in on the Galatians' progress toward their final goal and slowing them down? It's, it's the Judaizers. The Galatians were running a good race, but somebody cut in on them, causing them to break from the truth of grace alone. And now they're attempting to complete the race of a Christian life by legalistic self-effort rather than by faith. I mean, do you see what happened? They came to Jesus by grace, through faith. They truly, truly did. But now they're trying to live out their Christian life in their own effort, and it doesn't work. And Paul's writing them to say, look, it doesn't work. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So what's the truth that they're being hindered from obeying? Well, here it is. It's, it's the truth that Paul has been talking about all along. This is the truth. I made right with God by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by my own effort, but by the Holy Spirit. This is the truth that they have been hindered from obeying. Look at verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. God would never say this. That you need to add the work of law or works to the faith in Jesus to be saved. Jesus is not saying this. Jesus plus. When the Judaizers are teaching, teaching you, what they're teaching you doesn't come from, from God. Therefore, you can know they are not from God. This is what Paul is saying. In fact, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So, I mean, yeast, which in the Bible often does not refer to a good thing, Although for bread, it's a great thing. You have the yeast in a lump of dough, and it causes everything to expand and make it rise. The doctrine of works has just started in the Galatian church. It's just getting going. It's this terrible yeast that's being added, this virus that's being added. It's just getting going. And Paul wants to stop it now. He wants to cut it off now. Now is the time to stop it before it infests the whole church. Paul has done such a good job in the past teaching and discipling them that he's confident they're going to listen to what he has to say. And he says, and remember that there's judgment coming on those false teachers. Verse 10, 
I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Well, the he probably refers to a group of Judaizers, not just one person. And then we see a twist at this point, and, and it has shown up earlier in Galatians. We see a twist in the approach of these Judaizers. And so the, the twist is that they say, well, Paul, Paul did, they have been saying, Paul didn't go far enough. Yeah, it's Jesus, you're right, but you have to add works of the law. But now they, they add this twist when they say, well, but Paul is actually teaching circumcision. What? Well, I mean, that's what is implied in the verse. They're saying, but look, you know, Paul's actually teaching circumcision and uh, therefore uh, the law, like in other places. And maybe you just didn't get around to it with you people in Galatia. Like, really? Well, I'll tell you, you want to hear what Paul has to say to that. Verses 11 and 12. This is a sizzling, sarcastic reply to them saying that maybe Paul is teaching circumcision somewhere else. Look what it says, 11 and 12. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The fact these Judaizers continue to persecute him shows that it's not true. He's not preaching circumcision. Like, this is a lie. And by the way, Paul says, if you think you can get salvation by cutting off a little piece of skin, go for it. Cut it all off. Emasculate yourself. Look the salvation you get if you do that. I told you it was sizzling, sarcastic reply. Let them emasculate themselves, he says. In fact, this comment has connections with idolatry because in that area of Galatia, there were some priests who literally emasculated themselves to be a priest in the idol temple. So Paul is making a connection, not just that sarcastic supply, but making a connection between these Judaizers and the old idol worship. Paul's equating the Judaizers with pagans. To be free in Christ, stand firm in freedom by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Freedom from the law. Freedom from trying to get God to love you. Trying to get God on your good side with good works and religious freedom. Paul says, be free from that. You're already free from that. Don't go back to something like that. And now he talks about freedom too. So freedom from all that stuff. All that that religiosity. All that burdensome religion. Freedom in the Holy Spirit to, to what? To love. That's what he says. Freedom to love. To love God and to love others. Verses 13 and 15. To be free in Christ, stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit in love. Look at verse 13. On to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you do not consume, be consumed by one another. So you're free 
but not free to indulge your flesh, your sinful nature in any way you want. That's not Paul's definition of freedom. It was the definition of freedom in the 60s, the hippie movement, and by many other people since then. But Paul say, no, that's, that's not freedom. It's not freedom to indulge the flesh, the sinful nature. The believer's not free to sin and then to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter what I do. It does matter what you do. That's not being free in Jesus. Freedom in, in Jesus Christ is allowing the Lord Jesus to live his life in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the result, Paul says, the result is love. So love here is not romantic love. I mean, we need to do some defining of love. We use it in so many different ways. Love here, it's not a romantic love. It's not affection because you really like someone. It's not a friendship. Love is in the way you love your dog or your cat, I mean, uh, or someone else. It's not a general kind of love that Paul is talking about. Now, Greek, the language of the New Testament, uses different words for love. And the word used here is agape. Agape love. That's the kind of love he's talking about. It's the kind of love that is a self-sacrificing goodwill toward others, whether you like them or not. Whether you have a lot in common with them or not. Loving others, this agape love, this self-sacrificing goodwill. That's, that's a demonstration of real liberty, Paul says. That's real freedom, especially when you love those who are difficult to love. Okay, so let's look at it this way. Liberty plus love equals service to others. Right? Liberty, freedom, plus love equals service. It just flows out. You will serve others. You will. In the kind of love that, that Paul is calling us to in this passage. Liberty minus love which is the definition many people have for freedom, is slavery to sin. It's not real freedom. But Paul says what Jesus also said, loving others is the real fulfillment of the law. I mean, we'll come back to this again, but if you keep the law of love, you will fulfill what Jesus wants to do in and through your lives. It's the real fulfillment of the law. When you love others with this kind of love, you'll be truly loving others. Now, I want you to look at that last verse, verse 15. This is what verse 15 says. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is how Paul completes his thought in this section. You see, the Galatian church needed this admonition. And having been the pastor of different churches, I know that every church needs this admonition. We need this admonition as well that Paul comes to as he finishes his thought in this paragraph. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. You know what? We can have differences of opinion, and we do. You have two people in a room, and you have two different opinions. I'm Baptist background, so I can say this joke too. You get one Baptist in the room and you got two opinions. Loving others is a true antidote for strife and division in the local church. If you love them, you won't fight with them. You can have a difference of opinion. We do. We do. 
But these differences of opinion sometimes result in strife in the congregation and, and biting and devouring one another. And what happens, we have to say, where is the love? Where is the love? Well, here's our summary for this passage. To be free in Christ, stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit in love. Brothers and sisters, this is the freedom we're called to. It's a specific kind of freedom that truly is freedom. This is the freedom that God wants to give us. A true Christian freedom. And it lies somewhere between the extremes, the the heresies that say, on the one hand, well, I'm saved, so it doesn't matter what I do. Or the other hand, the the legalism that says, well, I'm saved, but I've got to keep all the rules so God will love me. No, 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 no. To both of those. We are free. We're free from the bondage of having to earn God's love and God's grace that comes to us in Jesus. And we see it supremely in his death on the cross. And so we can come to we can come to God the Father and we can say to him, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. That kind of intimacy with him. We are free. We're free from the guilt of sin, free from the penalty of sin, and free from the power of sin. Jesus Christ sets us free. Now, it can be a process. You know, we sing about he breaks the chains of bondage. You know what? And, and, and maybe, maybe some of you are here saying, but I, I have chains of bondage that are broken. Like I've given my life to Jesus. I really have. So I want to sing that from my heart, but like what's going on? Well, it can be a process as God works in your life. And a part of that process, a part of that process is reading the word of God, hearing what God has to say. A part of that process is prayer, talking to God about it. A part of that process might be sharing with a a, a Christian friend that you really trust the struggles that you have. And a part of that process might be sharing those struggles with a Christian counselor because God wants to break the chains and set us free. It's for freedom we have been set free. So we enter into that process not to gain our salvation. We have that in Jesus. (laughs) But to step into the freedom that he has for us day by day by day by day. Jesus Christ sets us free. But without the continuing work of the Holy Spirit, that freedom, that liberty, it can and it will go bad. The power we're looking for is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to lead us in the Jesus way. Let's pray. Father God, oh, how I pray that for all of us, you would bring these truths deep into our hearts, our minds, our lives, and continue to bring your transformation into our lives, that we would be more like Jesus, even going from glory to glory, to be more like Jesus, even in this life. And we know that in the end, when our final day comes, that by your grace, through the death of Jesus Christ, we will be perfect in your will. And we say thank you. Hallelujah. Amen.